You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by Dr. Doug Ronald, who's an academic and author of two previous books, Young Nelson's Boy Soldiers During the Napoleonic Wars, which came out in 2009, and Youth Heroism and War Propaganda. Britain and the Young Maritime Hero, 1754 to 1820, which came out in 2015. Prior to becoming an academic and full-time writer, he ran his own company as an investment banker in the city of London. But now he's a full-time writer with his latest book, which came out earlier this year, is The Life of John Andre, The Red Coat Who Turned Benedict Arnold. So welcome, Doug. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. And thank you for giving me the opportunity, absolutely. Well, this, this book's been out for a little while, and we've been trying to schedule you, and as, as they might be able to hear, you, you, you're not from Washington, D.C., so it's been uh, kind of this constant back and forth with the publisher about when are you going to be in town, so we're really help, happy that you're here now. Um, the question I've had since I read this book, and I kind of re... I came back to it lately because I wanted to make sure I remembered everything, but the thing that really stood out to me is I've read other biographies of John Andre, or John Andre as a historical figure has popped up in other works, whether it was about the culprit spy ring or about uh, you know, just the revolution in general. Yeah. But what makes now the time to write a new John Andre biography? And what really makes this book different than the books that have come before it? Yeah, I mean, I came across John uh, through my research for my doctorate where I was looking at young heroes. And um, you know, I've been taught American history, uh, the 13 reasons why we lost the Revolutionary War. We, the Brits, gave you one. So I, uh, I wasn't looking to rewrite history, but I wanted to learn more about uh, that war, uh, albeit from a painful process, possibly. But um, I came across John, and uh, he caught my eye because he was described in the British press, uh, and I was studying war propaganda, as a British hero. And I said to myself, wait a minute, we had no heroes. It was all one-way one traffic. Right. We lost, we lost, we lost. So that caught my eye. And I started reading back, and I went to one of the earliest one, Winthrop Sargent's, a very good early biography. And uh, I went through the process, and obviously there was a learning curve for me. But I noticed it was very, written very much from an Amer naturally from an American point of view, as were uh, the, 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 the subsequent biographies. Uh, that was the first issue for me. But secondly... Um, Yes, he came across as a hero, but he also came as a hero not just for, for, for Britons, for, but also for Americans. Mm -hmm. They took him to their heart. And if I was going to write a book about a war we lost, I, I didn't want to go looking for a, a bad Brit. Right. Okay? Because I knew nobody was going to read about a bad Brit. Okay? Um, uh, but Americans are taken to their heart, not least Alexander Hamilton. Sure, yeah. And well, I mean, exactly. even modern ones. Too. I mean, we look at this, I can tell you my perception of Andre is kind of as this dashing you know, British officer who got a bad beat, and we'll talk about that at the end, yeah. but also somebody who was a professional. And it's very hard to 
be mad at anybody, even if they're part of the enemy, if they're a professional, right? I mean, you look at, you know, even the way we perceive World War II in the German army, right? We, we don't, Rommel is, you know, kind of considered a great general, even in the West, even in the non-Hitler side, because he was a professional soldier. Yeah. And I see Andre as kind of this professional soldier, where Cornwallis and Clinton and others had politics on their mind, and they were somewhat less of a kind of high-level professional soldier. Andre was a soldier first and foremost. I guess that idea of honor really brings him out to the Americans, certainly from my perspective. Yeah, um, and going a stage further on that, what I noticed in, in reading, and here was possibly a, a prejudice issue, uh, that yes, he was a professional soldier, but when it came to spying, uh, he came across to Americans, or he was portrayed by American writers as a bit of an amateur, mm -hmm. a bit of a naive, because when you get caught, right. somebody's at fault, okay? So it has to be the guy who gets caught. Uh, and I started uh, to, to question that, um, and because uh, I wasn't sure, but I wanted to find out. So I thought I should go back to the beginning of his story, okay? And in negotiating with my publisher over what the title would be, uh, it was originally John Andre. And I said, no, this is, this is going to be the life of John Andre. Mm. His, his debacle at the end, his, his, his demise at the end is part of a journey. He didn't want to end up at that journey, but I needed to understand how the journey started. Right. So um, uh, that meant going back, and typically a lot of the previous biographies were, say, 300 pages long, typical size biography, um, 250 pages about the moment he arrived in America in right. 1774, so maybe 50-odd pages about what happened before he actually got to America. Well, he got to America at the age of 24, died at the age of 30. So yes, he, for Americans, it's important to understand those six years because they can dovetail it into the whole story of the war. But I needed to understand how he'd come there. Was it by accident? Did he hate the Americans? Was he looking for a punch up? You know, where was he after? Right. And I needed to understand that. And as a result of that process, as I embarked on the, on the story, uh, I found loads of new material that hadn't appeared in early biographies about well, the crazy stories. part is that like there's huge gaps in the historical record about what Andre did. Yeah, and, you know, it's one of these where a lot of the history is just kind of the exciting parts, and there's a lot of gaps in between. Yeah. How did you fill those gaps in many respects? I mean, you said you found stuff, but you also say in the book in your acknowledgments that you had, a, I guess, a kind of a, a magic bullet in the fact that the Andre family itself helped you to fill some of those gaps. Exactly. And uh, there I have to thank my wife. She went on Ancestry.com. I'm not doing a plug here for Ancestry.com, yeah. but they're a very good uh, organization. And she put me uh, in touch with uh, a, a descendant, a young descendant, I think he started in Australia. And she had been managing the Andre websites and put me in touch with uh, an uncle, one in England and another uncle in, in Australia. Um, the uncle in Australia had photograph material, it's a, uh, original paintings, but the one in England in deepest, darkest Sussex, just south of London, had uh, the chest, I'm sorry, the, uh, the, yes, it, was a, it was a metal chest full of letters oh yeah and, and memorabilia yeah <laughs> and um some that's a dream for a historian right? exactly yeah. the, the the dusty chest in the attic somewhere that no one's ever seen exactly and you know he literally had to you know he, he fished it up for me just as i arrived so he hadn't prepared for my visit okay and we you know uh, we, we you know, fished out the box the metal box opened it come and you know the dust all falls off everywhere and uh i started sifting through it and um he offered me to take it away and I said, uh, if I take it away, because I, I was, I, I come on with a notebook and I was going to down like this. He said, no, take it away. Um, and I said, well, if we're going to do that, I'm going to have to take a record. Right. You're going to have a copy of what I'm taking away and I'll have a copy and we'll sign off on that. Because I'd read a story recently where somebody did exactly the same, walked off uh, with the material and when he brought it back three weeks later, it was shy of X number of documents, mm. which were then sold online. Uh, and, you know, that's just, right, just no, not, that's my, that's not my, you know, right. I'm a professional historian. So, you know, we had a record, um, but so I took my stuff back, uh, he'd given to me to lend, uh, to look at, back down to the, 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 the West Country where I live, uh, in rural England, and with my 23 sheep, uh, and my Seriously, wife and two dogs, yes, exactly, yes. Okay, so you, that, you that have is a writing area out exactly. there where no so one's in the bottom. The, the, the sheep are my antidote to the serious writing. I write in the yeah. morning, and then I go and uh, talk to the sheep in the afternoon, okay? okay? So you've got your, your image there. But anyway, so I'm back home, and he rings me, the, uh, the, the Major Andre. He was also, he is, sorry, also Major Andre, of obviously a, a later, John, later generation. Anyway, he... Um, he calls me and said, I'm going to be down in your area. Um, can I drop in? And it became clear to me that 
somebody in the family had said, how could you have handed over all those documents? <laughs> okay. Right, well, I mean, that's natural. Like, you did what? Exactly, yeah, you know, and probably because they'd read that story. And that's why I'd made sure with, with the major that we were, you know, we were open and, uh, and, and honest with each other. So he came down to have lunch with us, and I handed back the documents having quote-unquote photocopied or recorded what I needed to do but I had the letters now right and uh, and uh, various other documents he gave me as well and that sort of kick-started things but a lot of the other material I came across was frankly online hmm. now partly because John Andre has been such a popular figure mm -hmm. uh, but also because he was in the newspapers at the time how could he end up in Westminster Abbey right you know you know uh, buried there as a British hero okay so uh, you know there are lots of threads there but I found that by keywording key for him, I could find him in all sorts of interesting places online. The problem is, how do you spell John Andre? John's easy, but the Andre is spelled variously depending on who's your, who your author is. Uh, A-N-D-R-E with an accent, or A-N-D-R-E double E, right. or I-E. And didn't so, his family call him Jean, basically J, spell it J-A-N? Jean, yeah, exactly, yeah. because they were French origin. Right. And they were what you call Huguenots, right. what, I, what we call Huguenots, um, divided by a common language. Yeah. Um, and um, they had fled France as Protestants, exiled, uh, thrown out of France, which was going back, going back to being pure Catholic. And uh, they came over in the 1740s, John's parents. John was born in 1750, first born in the family, but also uh, in England with, with the family. And... Um, but there was a merchant family, a uh, very successful family, uh, f first in France, then in Geneva, and now building up a, a career in, uh, in Britain, uh, trading primarily in fine silks and, and fine cloths. Uh, so again, question, why would John, who's being broomed for life in the merchant right. business, suddenly go off into the army? Okay. When you're the second son of Lord so-and-so, yes, you go into the army, and third son, you go into the clergy. But a merchant, you'll be, he was being groomed. His whole education was geared to that. And it was really good education. I mean, he had, like, the cream of the crop education, yeah. groomed to be an English gentleman, you know, to make a ton of money. Exactly, and mixing with yeah. uh, uh, Lord so-and-so. What I discovered was in 1769, life changed for the family. Uh, the family had been chasing... Uh, uh, money on, effectively, it's a very small stock market we had there uh, in a company called uh, the East India Company, which I'm sure you've heard of it, okay, uh, which was being ramped up on the stock market. I use that vernacular because obviously I, came, I come from the, stock, uh, the, uh, the, the world of business. And it was being ramped up, and the family bought into that heavily, borrowed heavily to finance it. And uh, the news came back from India that was bad news, uh, and the, the shares tanked fell dramatically and overnight the family was I wouldn't say bankrupted but was uh, severely uh, uh, impaired financially right, close to bankrupt as close which as coincided know. with the father suddenly dying yeah you say coincided there's no coincidence involved exactly in this, probably, right he killed that, himself ex that's yeah. my view yeah okay but you know I, I couldn't say that for certain but it was uh, obviously it created a, a tragedy within the family, uh, both both from a business point of view, but also from a personal point of view. And John suddenly found himself head of the family, which was not only of his mother, but of three daughters who were reaching marriageable age. And now we're no longer, uh, you know, marriageable because they're financially impaired. Right, and this is still a time when there's dowries involved. There's still a time when you're yeah. marrying for status. Yeah. And Andre, you said this is 69, so Andre is only 19 at this point. Exactly. So it's not like he's he's kind of in that in-between stage yeah. of schooling being over, but his life really hasn't begun yet. Exactly, yeah. And suddenly he has to start, start taking life very seriously. And um, he's in a relationship, not a relationship, that's, that's the wrong word, uh, a friendship with a, a, a poet called Anna Seward, uh, which diverts him away. That marriage has... that, that uh, She's lining him up to marry um, an adopted sister called Honora Snade, okay, uh, but with the, with, with the impairment of their, uh, their financial situation, that's had to be called off. So John suddenly finds himself not only head of the family, financially impaired, but his plans for marriage are, are torpedoed. So and the way you've written it, this wasn't just, yes, it was set up for kind of a status marriage. There seemed to be considerable feelings involved in this as well, at least toward 
Anna. Anna, exactly. Right? But that falls through also. I mean, so basically, his father kills himself. His family now is broke. Yeah. The the kind of quasi love of his life has told him to kind of go away. Yeah. And now he has got a whole family to take care of. I mean, this is about as crisis as it gets. Yeah. I think we would none of us would want that yeah. on ourselves. Okay. You know. You know. It's so from his point of view, he took the um, uh, bit in his teeth and said to himself, "Okay, I've got to get on with my life." And um, there's still a place for me in the in the merchant company or the family business, but but I've got to move on from here because uh, I've got high ambition. So he, uh, there were other relatives who were already in the army as redcoats, um, and so he was able to get by himself a commission. He'd inherited something from his father's will, so he decided he was going to buy a commission in in, in the army, with intention to f- basically serve and fight on the continent. Right. He was fluent in French, so that was a starting point, because the, the typical traditional enemy for, Fran- for Britain was France. So if we were going to do any work uh, in, 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 on the continent, it was going to be fighting the, the French. Um, but our natural allies were the Germans. Right. So he went over to Germany to complete his training. He was sent over by his commanding officer. Uh, again, this was a character that had not appeared in earlier no- uh, books about John. Uh, uh, a uh, Colonel Prescott, important to Americans because he was the one who mistreated, according to Americans, Ethan Allen. Right. Okay. Ethan the, Allen, who was not uh, really an American officer, was kind of on its own. Exactly. With the exactly. Vermont boys. Absolutely. Became this rallying this, this cry. Is, this was the twilight zone before Washington had made sure that the army was no longer a rebel army, but it was a continental right. army. But but the British officers were still treating anybody who was a uh, the enemy as a rebel, right. uh, including Prescott uh, uh, against Ethan Allen. Uh, and he became the subject of a lot of uh, a war propaganda, a propaganda against Prescott because he was a typical red coat officer, uh, in a sense, overplaying his hand with the enemy. So, uh, but he spotted John as, as, as a special um, character in that he um, not only spoke French uh, uh, and now would speak German, but also had that just that. That, that, that special age, that's, first he had ambition, mm-hmm. and a lot of officers who went in as redcoats, who frankly didn't have ambition, they'd just been kicked into it by the family, just go out there and be, wear a red coat for a few years, uh, and you'll, you'll become a general and so on and so forth. So John was special. Um, and well, he especially went to the best schools, he was very good looking, he was obviously very smart, he had a kind of a creative independent streak in him that wouldn't necessarily be true of everyone else, yep. like you mentioned. Let me, let me, let me stop you real quick because yep. What I had to kind of keep telling myself, and I certainly know this, but a lot of Americans may not even think about it, was the fact, in hindsight, we think in the 1770s, Britain's entire focus was on the, well, the United States and the revolution coming and you know the Boston Tea Party and the Boston Massacre. But it wasn't until really a couple of years later than that, even in the early 1770s, the expectation was the next war was gonna take place against France or on the continent. You know, that was the primary focus. Like, we were kind of the secondary. We, the United States, was kind of the secondary theater of operations, or at least people expecting that, you know, by the early 1770s. Not least because back up 10 years to what you call the French and Indian War, and we call the Seven Years' War. It ended for you in 1761, but for us it ended in 1763. Um, We had been blood brothers fighting alongside with American officers mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and juniors uh, against the French and against the Indians on your continent. So intuitively, we saw Americans as our friends, right. our allies, because you were Protestant, we were Protestant. The natural enemy back in those days was the Catholics, and they were Spain and they were France. So we didn't need to take and this as our fatal flaw if one's looking to uh, the, the, the politics of, the, of the, uh, leading up to the war, it was Britain's fatal flaw. They didn't understand that what they were doing to the American colonies was so offensive to the Americans. Um, and we had this sort of casual attitude to, to rail politic and politics uh, vis-a-vis the 13 colonies right. because surely the Americans understand that the real enemy is France, Spain, etc., etc. Because there were uprisings in inside England. There were uprisings in the you know the broader British Isles within Ireland. Yeah, yeah. There were uprising in British-held territories on the continent. Certainly, there were uprisings in the colonies. When we, and, and they weren't seen as anything dramatically different. Yeah. 
you know, from what was happening other places within the empire. Exactly. And that's what I, I, I tried to say this in my book, where for, for me, the journey uh, for someone like John Andre and his colleagues was it went from riot to rebellion to revolution. Okay? And it moved pretty ra rapidly, right. you know, step by step. But somebody like John arrived in 1774 thinking his job was to put down a riot just like he'd put down riots of tinners down in, in, in Cornwall a couple of years before. You called in the, you, you called in the army when the civilian governor or, or, or the local civilian official magistrate asked you to come in. The army was not there to put down riots. It had to be called in mm -hmm. to put down riots when the local police or militia, in this case, had failed to do the job. So that's what he thought he was doing, not coming to fight a war or anything like that. So, um, you know, events were moving, as we all know, pretty rapidly. But he arrived, and I think it's an important point I found, because again, in looking at earlier, earlier biographies, um, there's, there's an element of John was a bit of a naive. And what I tried to understand was that he arrived in 1774, not armed with the full knowledge of what he was up against in America, or going to be up against, but he came fully armed with the understanding of, of this notion of petite guerre, right. small warfare. The, hit, the, secret, the secret warfare that, that sort of surrounds the big battles, how you get there and how you come away from there. And his job, as what he'd been trained for during his time in, um, in Germany, uh, when he was at Göttingen University and studying, was not only learning the language, but learning how to make friends in the German, the 300 German states that could or could not be British allies against France in the next war, um, to, to make those friends so they would be useful as effectively a fifth column right. of information and source and relationships when the British Army came back 10 or 15 years later for the next war. Right. So he's basically developing his tradecraft. He's yep. developing how to become a good intelligence officer. Yep. He's trained militarily how to become a special forces guy, a commando. Yep. And what I thought was really interesting and what really jumped out to me about his personality was when he went to Canada before he went to the United States. And unlike everyone else in his unit, he went to the Native Americans and said, teach me how to fight like you guys do. Yeah. Which, again, the 1770s, a British redcoat, an officer, you can't imagine anyone deciding Unheard of. Yeah. You're absolutely spot on. It, it's, it's fascinating because, you know, I, I saw this letter and I read it, and it's written to a, one of his sisters, his eldest sister. And I, I'm reading it. So that's a piece of you know, useful you know, uh, local color, you know, a bit of tourism stuff here. And I read behind the words, and I said, he may not be saying it to her, but he's saying it to himself. What I've just done now is learned how to fight uh, effectively guerrilla warfare local style, yeah. be it in the snow or not in the snow. This is stuff that had been learned uh, actually during the French and Indian War, okay, but now had to be relearned by the new generation. And he arrived out there trained by Prescott, to, to, to fight this uh, bush fight, is what it was called. Um, and he, he, you know, he, he suddenly found himself learning it so he could teach his fellow officers because they were just been sitting around for the last year or so. Right. Okay. Well, and they had no intention of going out and asking Native Americans to teach them how to do it, right? Exactly. They, just, they were too British, I guess, at the time. They were yeah. too, you know. Yeah, we know everything. Right. Well, and that certainly comes in handy later on. I mean, that's, he, he becomes, you know, kind of today where we look at the hybridization of special operations and intelligence. You know, this is something in the 1770s, he already realized that this idea of what happens on the outskirts of war was this combination of being ha having human intelligence officers on the ground giving you information, but at the same time, covert action and special operations kind of coming together. Exactly. But the, the extra ingredient he learned uh, or brought to the imminent war uh, and was already displaying during that brief time that he was in Canada before he was captured at Fort St. John in 1775 was that um, women who are normally invisible in war, mute in war, are important in war because they're at home, they bring relationships, information, sources, all the material that could be useful to, in this case, the enemy, to the Britons. And so he's, out, he's, he's befriending the French-Canadian women. How could he do that? Because he was, among other things, devilishly good-looking. Right. And suave, okay. and he had and the best exactly. education, and he spoke fluent French. Yeah. 
because of his background. Exactly. Yeah. You know. And he was used to relating to women. Right. Carry on. No, no, I mean that, that's he uses that for the rest of his career. Uh, exactly. And we'll come on to that when we get yeah. to the, the plot. Well, but even before the plot, when he's a POW, I'm using that term loosely. Of obviously, yeah. they don't yeah. call him that at time for about a year. Right. Yeah. He's in prisoner camp, um, where he's still kind of wheeling and dealing and kind of developing leads and developing relationships even as a prisoner yep. of the Americans. Exactly. And it's interesting that the um, you know a lot of previous biographers tend to skirt over that one year. So John got captured at Fort St. John, uh, which is just south of Montreal, and m marched uh, with the other 1,500 or so you know, prisoners that Americans had sort of you know, scooped up as a result of two, of, of two forts that they had captured down into the designated area for where these prisoners were going to be held, uh, not in captivity, they were going to be under house arrest, mm -hmm. you know, with a six-mile radius that they could, they could uh, in a sense, uh, uh, sort of explore beyond the house that they were they had been nominated to live. Uh, in Basically, they were going down to Pennsylvania, so Lancaster, Reading, and by extension, Carlisle, when they got too difficult to handle in Lancaster and Reading, they were shipped off to Carlisle, which was fairly remote, it was almost on the border. Um, and there's a basically uh, John's life stopped in war, war terms for about a year, but it didn't stop for him, and it didn't stop for Americans. Right. Okay. Uh, firstly, they had to take care of the prisoners, and there's a lot of information about that in uh, uh, some very good collections put together by the by the Americans uh, of uh, of that period, but it doesn't appear in the biographies because um, I, I'm just not sure people would be interested. Other, other, you know, other biographers say about him a year in captivity. But for me, it was very important right. to understand the tensions between Americans and, uh, and Britons away from the battlefield. And there were tensions, uh, partly because a lot of the towns that they were coming to weren't ready for 500 prisoners to be you know, offloaded onto them and told, you've got to pay for them, you've right. got to house them. So there were issues like that. And, and Britons didn't like being put into captivity. They weren't used to that. Well, there's also the dynamic of the fact that many of these small towns were not full of patriots. They still had loyalists and that you had to worry about the relationship between the prisoners and the loyalists. And yeah. I mean, that's again, another thing that most of us forget when we learn about the revolution is that you like to think of it as everybody rising up together. I think it's like only half of the American population or the colonial population actually wanted independence. About half wanted to remain loyal to the I, crown. I, yep. and, and so you have those people everywhere. Yep. You have to worry I, about. I, I think you're, you're, you're very indulgent to the British on that point there. I think if we're, if we're talking about 50-50, uh, I think candidly my view is that the majority really did want to move on with their lives and independence, independence was the way to go. But there was a significant minority, a lot of them in quite powerful positions, uh, who were very ambivalent about independence, were forced to be silent about the, the, the process and hoped that the British would do something to break the... Uh, the impasse that was building up, leading to war, um, and now into war. Um, but uh, you know, the British just, just, just didn't deliver. They didn't bring enough troops. Right. They didn't you know, enough uh, support, and left a lot of the loyalists basically abandoned, forced to go silent. So, um, but yeah, as you say, there's a lot of there was a lot of tension there at the at the, at the civilian level, and John, uh, probably his greatest quality above all above all, above all was his ability to be uh, invisible. Uh, he learned that you know, he was handsome, but he, he, he could be a bit of a chameleon. So whilst he was in that year of captivity, he was making friends right. in a very innocent ways through his poetry, through his artistry. You know, he was a great he was a little painter. So he would sketch the sons of so-and-so, and that way he would become friendly. You might use the word ingratiate. That, that's a negative um, connotation. He wanted to win the Americans back to the British cause. He did not hate Americans. Um, in fact, he liked a lot of Americans. He wanted you know, to be a good ambassador. One thing I found interesting is he really misses the, the year of the war that went best for the British. 1776, you know, Americans look at this as kind of like the, you know, our year. But that was not a good year for the Continental Army. That was lose New York Colony, the most important colony, get pushed back almost out of Philadelphia and later lose Philadelphia. Washington, I've seen some of the letters Washington writes to some of his relatives at the end of 76, basically saying, I think we're gonna lose this thing. Like, they think the war is close to being lost. Of course, 1777, when Andre is released, is a much better year for the colonists, at least toward the end of it. You know, so when Andre comes back, you know, you're looking at, 
everything from the kind of the move across the Delaware, uh, you know, across the Delaware River to Valley Forge, from Valley Forge to attack the Hessians to Saratoga at kind of the end of the year. So he's really reintroduced when things aren't going great for the British. And certainly 78 is when the war is essentially going to be over one way or another. You can kind of, in hindsight, look at that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because, uh, in a sense, you've got two theatres of war going on in that in, in, in that year, 1777. You've got the uh, Philadelphia campaign, and you've got the campaign to come down from Canada, uh, down effectively the Hudson uh, Channel, okay, and uh, link up with New York and cut off the uh, the, the super rebellious uh, New England colonies. So the plan there was to divide, mm -hmm. okay. Um, and that's Burgoyne coming down from Canada, uh, and uh, but he fails. Right. Gets caught at Saratoga, but whilst he's failing at Saratoga, the British are succeeding at Philadelphia, and yeah, literally, there's we the British arrived at the gates of, of Philadelphia uh, at the same time that Saratoga is being you know the Battle of Saratoga is going on and being lost by the British. So there was definitely a schizophrenic reaction by the British, but John was in the winning team. Right. He, he was, he was on, he, uh, with General Howe marching his way up to Philadelphia. And this is where, in addition to Fort St. John a year before, he was blooding himself. So, you know, yes, he was a spy, fast forward, but actually at this stage he is a battle-hardened, uh, a soon-to-be battle-hardened uh, uh, officer fighting alongside somebody called General Gray. Now, he's an iconic figure, along with Prescott, mm -hmm for um, American propaganda. Why I keep on coming back to propaganda? Because my doctorate was about right, propaganda, right, no. okay? Well, I mean, okay. I mean, all Americans understand the, the value of propaganda in the revolution from Thomas Paine and yeah. all the yeah. Sons so, of Liberty. So, so, yeah. there's, there's truth there and there's whatever it is, okay? Yeah. But you can, make, you can make a lot more of truth by adding a bit of propaganda as long as there's truth somewhere in, 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 in the core there. And uh, there was a battle, uh, Battle of Paoli, is that how you pronounce it? Paoli, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, or it's the massacre of Paoli, okay? And this was when the British under Grey uh, decided to take uh, the bullets out of their, uh, their guns and fix their bayonets. Now, uh, I'm, I have to be careful what I say here, okay? Because uh, if I compare that to the later massacre, uh, uh, Baylor's massacre, which is also another infamous incident that Grey was involved in. Um, that was unpardonable, the Baylor one, because he took, uh, uh, this is a year or so later, uh, Gray took uh, American soldiers and officers by surprise who were just camping out mm -hmm. and massacred them at the end of a bayonet. Uh, the difference with Paoli was intelligence had come to Gray, probably via John, that General Wayne was planning an ambush the following morning, early morning. So Gray decided to preempt that and do a night attack. And a night attack, you don't go in with guns blazing because you're, you know, you're going, sadly, for better or worse, with bayonets. Right, I mean, it's, it's covert action. You want to try to go in Absolutely, silently yeah. and, yeah, yep. yeah, you know, okay. so, so I'm standing my ground on that, making oh, two yeah. comparison there, because one, I, I, it was appalling. The other one was, in, in the laws of war, uh, necess necessary. But it was tactically necessary. I mean, you yeah. go in silently. I mean, that's, exactly. Okay. You know. So, uh, but John was in the thick of that. He wrote up. He, he was writing a journal because Gray wanted him to keep a, a daily journal of Gray's successes and you know, uh, uh, you know, and uh, uh, and, and brackets failures. Um, so John's job was uh, to keep a record, but that record required him to go out into the field. Mm -hmm behind enemy lines, because it was also his job as, as a sort of quartermaster was to, to forage, because the 20,000 people had arrived for this, uh, this uh, campaign on, on Philadelphia, and they had to, they had to be fed mm -hmm. and all that. So, so and we, weren't, we weren't going to plunder, we were going to forage. The Hessians, unfortunately, plundered. The British were told, well, the Hessians were told as well, but they ignored the orders. The British were told, you do not plunder, because we want to win over right. the civilian population. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. 
Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. I want to, if you set the scene for us in 1778 of the wonderful deception operation that John runs using the women in Philadelphia. Yep. Uh, can you set the scene and kind of walk through that story? Because I don't even want to lead you up to it. It's, it's a wonderful story. It comes back to be important later on, certainly because of the relationships that are built during this time also. Exactly. Yeah, uh, to refresh memories, um, Britain had recaptured Philadelphia in late 1777, and they were uh, occupying Philadelphia through the winter, through till about May, uh, June of the following year. And uh, it was a poison chalice. They were trapped in Philadelphia. There was a valley forge over the, over, the, over the horizon. The Americans were building up an army, and basically, Saratoga had happened. Suddenly, a war is now pretty much over. Was the French, after Saratoga, joined the war? Exactly. And, yeah. so, so we're in a trap. Uh, in, in, in Philadelphia, uh, you know, had a nice winter, whereas the Americans at Valley Forge have been freezing. Um, but more, more importantly than that, uh, how are we going to get out? Because the orders had come now that we had got to retreat to New York, which was still firm base. Uh, how do you move well on some 20,000 people? Um, and plus loyalists who had, who had hung their, you know, their, their coats on the British success and suddenly were being abandoned. Mm-hmm. They're going to want to leave as well, people like Joseph Galloway. So um, the British uh, had to plan that exit. Uh, but Howe was also being recalled at that time. And a lot of the officers serving under Howe were very loyal to him. And they were unhappy that he was being recalled, apparently in disgrace. So this thing called the Mesquianza, uh, which is basically a sort of, you know, sort of almost a medieval, you know, uh, entertainment stroke banquet uh, was put together by a group of officers among whom was John uh, he brought his skills as a, as a, as a poet and artist to, 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 to the, uh, the, the preparation for the entertainment because they were going to be putting on a play uh, there was going to be a sort of theatrical with uh, w- you know, women loyalist women young ladies dressed in, you know, in, in Turkish style which was all the fashion, you know, all the fashion at that time um, so John drew, uh, drew images of what the girls were going to have to wear, so they all went away and you know, got the seamstress to make their dresses for them. What John was doing was preparing for the departure. Uh, he understood where this was going, uh, but he was building his relationships with the women, trying to work, who, work out who in amongst a dozen or so women who had volunteered to, to be part of the Mesquianza, who were going to be loyal friends once the British had left. Basically, who are going to be stay behind, who are going yep. to not leave with the rest of the loyalists, yep. and who are going to be left in place. As a fifth column. Right. In, in modern day language. So um, he, he looked down the list, uh, obviously formed relationships with various of the girls, and um, he homed in on, for want of a better expression, on a young girl called Peggy Shippen who was 17, probably going on 18, uh, who was the, the, uh, the daughter of, one of the daughters of the Chief Justice of uh, Shippen of, of Philadelphia, a loyalist who was you know, trying to keep you know, his feet in two camps. Uh, but Peggy had no illusions about that. She knew exactly where her loyalties were uh, in her mind. Uh, the British were going to be retreating, but they were going to be coming back. This was a war that Britain was going to win. Uh, so... Um, they cut a deal and agreed that uh, Peggy was going to form a relationship with a senior Continental Army officer, uh, so far unchosen, uh, and marry him and uh, turn him. Right. So uh, we'll talk about who that's going to be in a second. I mentioned that there's been a lot of back and forth and there's a lot of disagreement about what Andre's relationship with Shippen was if it was platonic, if it was professional, or if there was actually a romantic relationship. Yeah. Um, where do you come down on that? Um, in my opinion, uh, it was a, uh, a rela- relationship of convenience, to a certain, uh, certainly in the beginning, based on common goals and common interests and common, common sympathies. Uh, I have great difficulty imagining a girl of 17 would allow herself to be de- deflowered, right. if you want a better word to describe her. Um, 
by uh, a man who she wants to trust but is, is about to leave town okay may or may not succeed and she doesn't need they, they do not need to form that relationship there's enough of a relationship as it is there may be a, a marriage at some stage that will be the reward for both of them mm -hmm. when they both succeeded they don't need to um, uh, muddy the waters at this right. stage because she needs to be able to deliver herself excuse my vernacular there to this this great this uh, the continental army officer intact right so i do not believe that but i believe that there was love was formed and it's evident from the intensity of some of the poems he subsequently wrote that that love turned into a jealousy as we move forward into the plot sure okay. yeah let's move forward into the plot because of course we are talking about the recruitment of None other than Benedict Arnold, yep. um, who, man, I think I think I was five years old or six years old in elementary school. We first hear that name as like the the worst of the worst, the guy we hiss at. Um, and and I've read a lot about him, but you really, it, it's hard not to read this and just be like, God, this guy was a horrendous person. Yeah, yeah. I, it's just it, he comes back from being a fairly good general. I mean, he's one of the top generals at least of success in the Continental Army. And he gets injured and he comes back and wants to retire in Philadelphia, convenient for everyone. But he expected praise and stature and money and to be taken care of in Philadelphia yeah. and found just none of it. Yeah. So Shippen clearly is a, has a perfect target. Exactly. For uh, moving forward. And what I find interesting is that uh, earlier biographies uh, are ambivalent about this, the, 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 the strength of Peggy's role in, in that, uh, uh, those early stages of the plot. She, she was a driving force, no question about it. They, uh, she and uh, Benedict married in April um, 1779, um, and uh, within um, two months, he was writing to, Britain, uh, to the British uh, spy service in New York saying, I want to turn. Okay, uh, so he was obviously ready to be turned, mm -hmm. but she unlocked the door. Right. Okay, um, and uh, so that's a very forceful woman in an age when women were, frankly, not that forceful. Certainly not in a war a wartime period. So you know, I found that fascinating. But Benedict Arnold was uh, again. I come back to the, the the previous biographies because Americans have been taught to hate Arnold as the ultimate turncoat. The story that's told about the, the ongoing plot now focuses on, in my opinion, too much on how bad he was to Americans. Right. And I, 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 I accept that, take it on face value, and I totally agree with it. That's not the issue. I'm not looking to rewrite that history. What I'm saying that, is looking at it from a British point of view, is what he did to one Britain exactly. was almost as bad, if not worse, because it's one thing to betray a country, heck, we don't want to happen to, but to betray a fellow blood brother in a plot, which is what he did. Yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, I, it's interesting. I, I was going to ask you that question. To you, there seems to be no question that Arnold sets Andre up. Uh, when he started to is, is debatable, um, but at some point in time, so we're, we're into a 18-month negotiation with Arnold and Peggy in Philadelphia and John now in New York, which is British headquarters, moving up the ranks to become the, the, the spy master. Right. Um, and uh, uh, the contact comes in, engineered by Peggy from Benedict, saying, I want to turn. And there's an 18 months or so negotiation, uh, which incre increasingly distills for the British down to what the grand stroke is going to be that's going to turn the war. And now we're not talking about turning the war so Britain would win it, just so they can negotiate something. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Or maybe divide the colonies. There's some, some master stroke, okay, um, which, get, which gets in, in, ever smaller and smaller as the British, the American army becomes ever more all enveloping, okay? So you can, you can feel the, the claustrophobia in New York in the British camp there as they're running out of ideas. And, you know, and John brings this idea to Clinton, who's the new commander in chief. You know, I've got a contact with the top general here. So for 18 months, they're negotiating with Clinton, uh, with, with Arnold over what the grand stroke is going to be. And it's you know, constantly master stroke, Gans grand stroke in these, in these letters. Be, it's all stagecraft, you know, it's all uh, spycraft. You know, you've got coded letters, right. you've got you know, uh, invisible ink, you know, the, whole, the, whole, the whole shooting match and code names. Well, there's really great tradecraft on the part of Arnold because at first 
he's not necessarily 100% sure Arnold is above board. He's worried, we call it a dangle, that Arnold was being basically being sent by Washington to be a false traitor yeah. and to put, push disinformation. And then even the, the kind of negotiations about where they're going to meet and how they're going to get together, Andre's using good tradecraft. He doesn't want to find himself in a position where he's going to get caught. And But Benedict Arnold really hits him where it hurts in the end, where he goes after his honor, he says he's cowardly for not doing it the way he wants to do, and then, of course, uses Peggy Shippen as bait. As bait yeah, it, exactly. It, and what is interesting is that um, whilst the British are, are talking about this, the, 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 the basis of the, the, the master stroke, which ultimately fixes on West Point, Arnold is thinking about one thing and one thing only at that stage. How much? You know, how many? How many shekels am I going to? How many thirty pieces of silver right, am I exactly. going to get? He's driven by money, 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 and the, uh, but he did, he's saying I want demand. I want the money, whether I succeed or whether I fail. Now the British want to pay him because you know the British want to be turning generals, so they're not, they're not averse to paying him. They don't want to pay him for for failure. They want to pay him for success. So there's, there's this argy bargy that goes on between the, you know, by remote control through all the coded letters and mm-hmm. you know secret agents and passing through you know various intermediate you know, loyalist intermediaries. Um, there's you know the negotiation carries on. It fails. Brit- Britain then says, okay, forget about uh, Arnold. We're going to go off and we'll attack Charleston. So a mission goes down to Charleston. So the, the negotiations are interrupted for six months or so, and now we're back into early 1780, when. John comes back from Charleston, the successful capture of uh, Charleston, which was a major victory for the British. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, and uh, Clinton then comes back, and uh, coincidentally, Arnold resuscitates the failed negotiations. By now, by, by which time Peggy is pregnant and pretty much out of the game. Okay, so as active as she was in the beginning, she's now fairly passive and invisible. Arnold is now negotiating direct. It's no longer letters that Arnold composes to, for Peggy to write to John. Right. Peggy's out of the game, okay? Um, but she, she's there to be used as bait, pick up on your earlier point. So uh, negotiations are resuscitated, and now Arnold is moving at cracking pace. He wants to, he's, he's just negotiated with uh, Washington to be made commander or commandant of uh, West Point. West Point was important then because it was up this vital waterway called the Hudson River. Right. Control of that could divide the 13 colonies, which was now the fallback position for British military policy. Control that, that, that uh, waterway all the way up to Montreal, and we could just about divide the New England colonies and therefore have an honorable peace. Um, so West Point is, is, is the target. That's the grand stroke. Uh, and, and Arnold's got himself, he's finagled Washington into agreeing with him to make him commandant. So now Arnold's in pole position to deliver up this grand stroke. Um, but he's now moved on emotionally, whether it's because he's heard back in Philadelphia from all these other bells, not just Peggy, how handsome and dashing and lovable and romantic and etc. etc. and glamorous this chappy called John Andre was during the occupation. So John is handsome, you know, 30 year old. Uh, uh, Arnold is war-wounded, crippled, you know, past his sell-by date in Mm -hmm. in today's modern language. So I I feel that a jealousy built up. So it was no longer just about money, it was about jealousy. Okay, but that's, but he wasn't going to let that get control of him, because actually it suited his plan. If he could get John behind American lines, cut a deal with him in secret about the, the 30 pieces of silver, then dump John, Okay, leave him behind to live or die, um, preferably to die. When, when Arnold arrived in British headquarters, because Arnold was pretty certain that the West Point conspiracy, the West Point deal was a, uh, was a no-hoper. No the British believed in it, but he didn't believe in right. it. So he, what he was looking to do was he was looking to, to escape, okay, and um, to, to flee to, America, to, to British lines, armed with a promise from John to honour the 30 pieces, okay? That meant that John must not live yeah. to, to, to say, I didn't agree anything, because there's absolutely no way John was going to agree in the dead of night in this meeting that's happened and was engineered by Arnold, OK? 
Bay, um, at Haverstraw Bay, uh, in, in, in the upper reaches of the Hudson River. Uh, he, there's no way John was going to risk his professional career by agreeing something that had, that had been under negotiation and disagreed with by Clinton for two years. Okay? He was not going to say, yeah, we'll pay you 30, 31 pieces. Right, so the idea was the draw drawn in, kind of waste a lot of time with him yep. so that it becomes daylight and much more difficult to yep. escape and then hope he gets killed so that he can go back and make up anything that he wants to yep. when he talks to the British. Yep. And now, and this is this is where I, I diverge from the, the normal American versions of this story. Uh, and I, do, I diverge simply because, in my opinion, American uh, historians and biographers see John as a naive right. because he failed. Okay, uh, and therefore uh, failure automatically means that you were a bit of a naive, a bit of a sort of uh, an ingenue. Uh, I th John's mistake, and in that sense I agree with American paragraphs, but, but for different reasons. John's mistake was he could not believe the evil that Benedict Arnold was capable of. Yeah. That he was prepared to set him up to deliberately leave him behind American lines to, to, to take care of himself. But John actually writes in, I was betrayed. Well, there's an extraordinary string of bad luck that Andre has. Running into Ben Talmadge, the head of American intelligence, when he's captured, is about as bad luck as you can get. Because if they had kind of passed him around a little bit, you know, not really knowing what to do with him, but he runs into Benjamin Talmadge, who brings him straight down to Washington, and that basically seals his fate in many respects. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I see Talmadge in a sense as just the, the, the final nail in the coffin, yeah. which has started from the moment that John came ashore uh, two or three days later up at Haverstraw Bay um, and had had to go north, cross the Hudson, and come down south, down east uh, of the Hudson, uh, where he ran into the, uh, the Skinners, was captured, and passed back to American lines because he had value with his boots and his shoes and all that sort of stuff, okay? Right. And uh, uh, interrogated by uh, one American um, uh, Continental Army officer and then by Talmadge. But by, by, by the time he reached Talmadge, without disagreeing with you entirely, I felt the die was already cast. And right. actually, John, by that stage, had already decided that the, the, the die was cast. Well, that's the interesting thing is even in capture, he tried to be honorable. And that kind of is this kind of yep. constant theme to protect Peggy yep. from making sure that she doesn't get drawn into this, even though she was knee deep in it. Even to protect Benedict Arnold, but a lot of that was to protect Peggy, because obviously it, the, Arnold goes track straight back to her. Yep. And really, what he's trying to push is the, to prevent the British from falling into a trap. So he's trying to get this information out, yeah. so that even in death, he can keep them from you know final death blow. Yeah, I mean, you know, this, he did not have a death wish as such, you know. And right up until the end, he probably thought that you know there's a possibility I might be exchanged. Uh, you know, I have, you know, I'm an officer. Um, but but he accepted that more important than his life and his death now at this stage was. The two for one, as you say, protect Peggy. Now, why did he need to protect Peggy? Why was why was she vulnerable? Why she was vulnerable? Because if John spilled the beans on Arnold before Arnold could escape, there was the risk that Arnold would spill the beans on his wife. Wait, there's clear. He clearly has no honor at all. Exactly. Sing like a so, so, the, so the devil's pact that was effectively made by John. Uh, probably in those negotiations that went f so seriously pear-shaped over in Haverstraw Bay, was, we three are in this together, aren't we? Mm -hmm. And that would have been a message to John, if you put a foot wrong now as I'm about to abandon you, yeah, you can bring me down, you can bring yourself down, but are you prepared to bring down Peggy? Because if, if we, the two of us, bring down Peggy, she will be hanged. And you, uh, Americans may not hang women, but this may be a first. Oh, yeah. This, in essence, this is a love story to a degree. I mean, yeah. you have to look at this as, I kind of read this thinking a tale of two cities. You know, the idea of kind of giving your life for the woman you love, yeah. even though she's with another guy and all this. So yeah. where, where Andre has the chance to fry Arnold and decides not to because it could possibly hurt Peggy. Yeah. It's really, I mean, honor, you can use whatever word you want, but that's, that's a love story yeah, in my respect. Yeah, and what, what, an interesting point in, 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 the, in, the, in the, those, those latter days of the story before he reaches Talmadge, okay, but Talmadge sees, you know, exactly where it's coming from, is these maps, the maps of West Point. Again, American authors, uh, biographers have said, 
This has to prove his naivety, that he actually held on to these maps, put them into his boots. Uh, so when he was captured, here's, here is you know, in flagranti evidence. Uh, therefore, you know, ergo, he, he, he was a complete naive, did not understand spycraft. Throw, throw it into the water, get, in, do, get rid right. of the maps. My argument is it's exactly the opposite. He had to hold on to the maps because he had to prove back to headquarters, if he got back to headquarters, or if he didn't get back to headquarters and somehow Arnold managed to, to, to swing this West Point conspiracy, okay, that the, um, the, the maps were proof positive uh, that Arnold was betraying the British. Because the maps were crap, right? They weren't, you yeah. know, and you, you explain this in the book, based on his time as essentially an imagery analyst, analyst is what we kind of look at today yeah. of drawing maps and understanding, and all you have to do is look at them and go, that's not right. Exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah and, 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 you know, they, and also, uh, he, he, he didn't need to hold on to the maps because he had, you know, he had a, a brilliant memory. He'd been working for map, with maps, for, as you say, for many years. So he did not have to take them with him, but he chose to take them with him as to proof. show as proof yeah. that uh, Arnold was drawing them into a trap, not a trap for the benefit of a Washington, okay, okay, but into a trap, okay, um, uh, and that, uh, that actually Arnold had no intention of seeing that through. He was looking to get across the British lines uh, as quickly as he could and collect his 31 pieces of silver. Get paid. Yeah. get paid. So uh, one last thing. I I'm wondering about how real you think the Alexander Hamilton trade offer was and, and how that could have potentially made history a little different. Uh, I, I think it's, 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 it's one, I think it's spot on. I think it's typical of the deniability. We see it with politicians nowadays. The, the president can't, you know, a president can't say something, but, but he can gainsay his junior, right. who does say something. Okay, and how far you go down to the junior is a matter for debate. Um, but in this case, um, uh, I think Americans, and this is again part of the problem with Americans writing about this, they're driven by a sense of guilt about the whole story. Mm -hmm. um, they wanted to hang Arnold. Right, no one wanted but, to hang John. But, but, they didn't want, they, 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 but they had to hang yeah. Andre. They had to do something. Right. Because you had Congress breathing down Washington's neck saying, we've got to have some punishment here. Right. So um, uh, the, the Hamilton story is, is very believable because uh, I, I think Washington was looking for a way out, but he couldn't you know, officially do that. So he, you know, he said to Hamilton, look, let's, let's see if we can sow a seed here with the British that there's a trade-off to be done here. Um, and Clinton, from all he wrote later, that's the commander-in-chief down in New York, from all I've read about him afterwards, he would love to have done it. Right, everyone thought this was a great idea except for the fact that it just, it just couldn't happen. You right? could not trade blood. Yeah. As bad as the situation was here, uh, we knew the Americans wanted out of this situation. Uh, we, you know, Clinton would have dearly loved to have given him uh, Arnold at some point in time. But at that point in time, if you, if you start handing back a, a traitor, a, a turncoat, okay, whatever you like to call it, uh, no, no other turncoats will ever come across right. ever again. You've got to protect your assets. Okay, so, so he, had, he had to hold on to Arnold, but he, he, Arnold had a very bad time with the British. Uh, the other office, British officers would not work with him because they didn't trust him. There is a wonderful kind of nice ending to all the, the wretched miscreant kind of perception of oh, even going into Britain, no one liked him, no one... Yeah. Well, we'll trust a traitor, right? But look at it from Washington's point of view. He said, hey, he's no longer our problem. Yeah. You know, <laughs> the British can have him. Um, but that's, that's diverting us away from the sad story, which is John. Yes, I, I, I'm not looked to rewrite history on this one or, 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 or sort of, uh, you know, change the outcome or uh, the em emphasis here about the fact that John needed to die, deserved to die. He, right. he was found as a spy. And part of his, that, that process well, after he'd been captured and brought uh, to Washington by Talmadge was to ensure that he was found guilty and, and executed as quickly as possible. Why? Because um, the British needed to know very quickly indeed that the plot had failed. Right. Uh, so that was, his, that was his final sacrifice, not only to protect uh, uh, Peggy, but also to hasten his death. Um, so he, he, he got the wheels moving quickly to ensure that there was an end game more rapidly, you know, a long negotiation, a long trial, right. you know, witnesses called, and gradually the full truth about, among others, Peggy coming out, um, and uh, just get on with it. 
So the book is The Life of John Andre, The Red Coat Who Turned Benedict Arnold. The author is Dr. Doug Ronald. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here on SpyCast. I've been waiting for this. This book came out in, I think, January. So it's been, when is he coming to the United States? So really appreciate the conversation because this is an interesting figure in not only British history, but also American history. So it's great to have you here. And thank you for the time. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information. Hey, listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now.